Welcome to a nonfiction story cast about people in Seattle who built churches and how they did it. I'm Cindy Safranoff. I'm the author, and this is Dedication, building the Seattle branches of Mary Baker Eddy's church, a centennial story. Episode 16, Joint Activities. First Church of Christ Scientists Seattle may have laid a cornerstone, but it seems that not much else was happening on the construction of their stone temple. They had not raised anywhere near enough funds to pay for the building, and for years now, the membership had been going through democratic wrestling, trying to find a workable way to finance the project that they could all agree on. At this point, at the end of 1911, the progress of Christian science in Seattle may not have seemed very impressive. There were four Christian Science congregations, First Church on Capitol Hill, Fourth Church downtown, the tiny Second Church in Ballard, plus a new small Christian Science Society in the recently annexed Rainier Valley in the southeast. Four congregations, but no edifices. First Church was still holding services at an inactive construction site in a drafty, uninsulated wood structure heated by a wood stove. The three other congregations were still renting halls. Furthermore, the future of Christian science might have seemed very uncertain. After the articles about her death in December 1910, Reverend Mary Baker Eddy continued to make headlines in Seattle but the coverage was generally negative. The tributes from the press were followed by ongoing coverage of the funeral arrangements, unusual in the amount of detail. The focus on cemetery, grave, and casket might seem to highlight the ironic fatality of this spiritual teacher who had so famously declared that there is no death. When the funeral was over, Newspapers chronicled sensational conflict and scandal of the sort that had always seemed to follow Eddie's career. There was a lawsuit over her will and a sensational splash from Augustus Stetson, one of Eddie's most problematic students, whose name was known to Seattle newspaper readers. Mrs. Stetson made headlines with bold claims of Eddie's ability to overcome death just like Jesus. Eddie will return in the flesh, Stetson promised. Stetson's statements were immediately publicly denounced by Boston church officials, but the press continued to publish articles on the topic. The Seattle Times printed a full two-page spread, including Stetson's statements, under the headline, Do the Dead Come Back? It was done in a tabloid style unusual for the Seattle Times, mixing images of deathbed resurrection from Eddie's illustrated poem, Christ and Christmas, with haunting images of ghosts, spirit writings, mediumship, and other weird claims of the paranormal. It was presented in a way that would make any Christian scientist shudder in dismay. Eddie had consistently spoken against spiritualist mediumship, It was a chapter in her textbook called Christian Science Versus Spiritualism and a recurring church sermon topic denouncing necromancy. But upon even glancing at the pages in the Times, skeptics might have felt affirmed in their worst suspicions about Christian science. 
Then the Seattle Times reviewed a book by Frederick W. Peabody, the Boston attorney involved in lawsuits against Eddy, who had become an anti-Christian science lecturer. The Seattle Times described Peabody's book as a complete exposure of Christian science, as a bogus healing system, essentially witchcraft. Meanwhile, news commentators were speculating on the future of the Christian science church without its strong leader at the helm. The vitality of her message will meet the supreme test now, noted one independent voice. Some said Reverend Eddy had left behind a faulty organizational design that posed a great dilemma for her followers. Experts were predicting the downfall of the church, either from power struggles and schisms or a slow but certain decline. All the predictions about the certain failure of Eddy's church might have seemed very credible. Christian science might have seemed certain to fade away into historical oblivion. It was at this moment of uncertain future that the Christian scientists in Seattle fulfilled the promise they had made to each other when there was only one church. Back in 1907, they had resolved to work together cooperatively. Following through on that resolution now seemed imperative. In July 1911, First Church initiated the first joint activity by proposing to Fourth Church that they combine their reading rooms. They both had reading rooms downtown, and they were only a few blocks apart. By combining, they could accommodate more people in nicer and more spacious rooms with longer operating hours, and they would no longer be in competition with each other. The initial invitation was only the start of a long process of consolidation. Plans for the location, leases, staffing, oversight, and operational rules needed to be developed and then approved by both churches. This process took nearly a year. In May of 1912, the new Joint Christian Science Reading Room opened in the Empire Building on 2nd Avenue. This development was reported in the Christian Science Journal as being a long step forward in Christian science work in Seattle. This new reading room consisted of five connecting rooms on the eighth floor. It had newly carpeted floors and newly purchased furniture. Both churches paid $140 per month into an operating budget, which covered rent and the salaries of two full-time staff. All other expenses, such as cleaning, printing, and stock, plus wages for two additional part-time staff, were paid for by profits from the sale of literature from the Christian Science Publishing Society. The manager in charge of the new joint reading rooms, the librarian, Alma Durant-Bixby, reported to the members, One cannot visit the reading room today without realizing the advantage of such beautiful surroundings and without feeling gratified at having the cause of Christian science represented in the heart of a growing city in so refined and quiet a way. The new reading rooms may have been quiet, but they were very active. Sales totaled at least $1,000 a month, more than $2,200 in December. Mary Baker Eddy's book, Science and Health with Key to the Scriptures, was their biggest seller. They consistently sold more than 100 copies a month. They also sold hundreds of pamphlets and many other items. Visitors borrowed books from their large lending library. 
Mrs. Bixby had been introduced to Christian science around 1902. She had been struggling with neuralgia, frequently experiencing such great pain that even morphine tablets could not safely dull it. She testified that after being introduced to the Christian science concept of God as love and love as the only power, she had an overnight healing. She took up the study of Eddie's textbook. In 1909, she moved from Juneau, Alaska to Seattle and became a member of First Church. Just before getting the job as a librarian, she was advertising as a Christian science practitioner. At the reading rooms, she would have frequent opportunity to encourage many others in their spiritual journey. On Labor Day 1912, they inaugurated open hours on Sundays and holidays from 2 to 7.30 p.m. Sometimes only one or two people came, but the librarian felt that even if only one person visited, the reading room had fulfilled its purpose. On other days of the week, during the first year, sometimes every seat was occupied in all five rooms. One of the five rooms was used for a variety of purposes. It was a place for storing extra stock, a private office for the librarian, and an overflow study room for visitors. It was also used as a boardroom for committee meetings and interviews with prospective church members. The joint reading room became a center hub, a place where members of First Church and Fourth Church, as well as others in the Christian science community, came into frequent contact with each other. Over time, the staff reported increasing use of the reading room, as described here. One of the most noticeable features of its growth is the increased attendance of its readers. By readers, I do not mean those who read from 15 to 20 minutes, watching all who enter, but the readers who read from the standpoint of studentship, who consult the dictionary for the meaning of words and for their different shades of meaning, and who study the Bible concordance and the concordance of science and health. There are many, many more who are studying in this manner than there were last year. The questions asked show a general awakening and a broader outlook. Another cooperative effort formed in 1912 was a distribution committee for Christian science literature. Its office was also in the Empire Building. The committee met twice a month on Saturday evenings. Heading up this committee initially was Walter S. Paget. Paget was one of the most prominent members of Fourth Church, soon to be elected to first reader. A well-connected member of Seattle High Society, he and his wife, Virginia Walsh, were often mentioned in the newspaper for their involvement with clubs and charities. Even their recreational activities were newsworthy. Automobile tours to national parks and Southern California, a trip to Hawaii, and a Mediterranean cruise. Professionally, Paget was also prominent as a dentist. He was an advocate for the advancement of the profession of dentistry. His office was in the Medical Arts Building, and he gave talks on dentistry. When he first learned about Christian science, he was immediately interested in it. He later publicly shared that several of his family members had significant healings. He continued being a prominent Seattle dentist, even after becoming a Christian scientist. An advocate for the advancement of Christian science also, as the first chair of the first Joint Literature Distribution Committee in Seattle, 
Dr. Paget oversaw the launch of a remarkable organizational effort with a strong sense of mission. As early as the 1890s, enthusiastic new Christian scientists everywhere had made systematic surveys of public and private libraries and reading rooms and made great efforts to place Mary Baker Eddy's book, at times overcoming great obstacles of resistance. One zealous Christian scientist on his travels single-handedly put the book in hundreds of public places throughout Europe and the East, the Christian Science Journal reported, so that the earth has virtually been encircled with the message of goodwill contained therein. The Seattle Joint Literature Distribution effort would do similar placements in their local area of Eddie's books. However, a major thrust of their outreach efforts was one being encouraged by Boston at that time. They focused on increasing circulation of the Christian Science Monitor. From its very beginnings, the Literature Distribution Committee was thinking long-term, keeping careful record of locations and frequency of their distribution in each district. Their outreach was launched with a $105 gift from Alan H. Armstrong, who had initiated a missionary committee for literature distribution in 1901. Dr. Paget's team gave one-year subscriptions for the Monitor to two fire stations, the Women's Department at the Seattle Public Library, and the Army Post at Fort Lawton, and 2,000 copies of the special Thanksgiving issue of the Monitor to business offices in the city. Soon the four churches began contributing to the distribution budget based on the size of their membership, a monthly per capita tax, starting in January 1913. The largest contributions by far because of having the largest membership by far, came from First Church. With these expanded funds, they expanded their reach. They gave monitor subscriptions to the Rainier Club, the Arctic Club, the Press Club, the University Club, and the Athletic Club, as well as the Masonic Library, a veteran's home in Port Orchard, the Fifth Avenue Car Barn, a main transit station for Seattle's trolley system, more fire stations, a children's foster care institution, and area prisons and jails. Soon after literature was placed at the county jail, Margaret Mason Walker was asked by the wife of an inmate to talk with her husband about Christian science. She did, and she left him with a copy of Eddie's book. He started reading it to his cellmates, and soon several men became interested enough to request a church service. A few weeks later, with the help of the jailer, simple services were given at two tanks. Over the next couple of years, they expanded this church extension work to the county jail, including the women's area, the newly built King County Jail, and the city jail, plus the municipal home for out-of-work men. Fifteen volunteers would leave right after their Sunday services to conduct services at the jails. By 1915, this group had become a separate joint committee, chaired by Mrs. Walker, who by this time was a practitioner. They expanded their prison outreach to the Willows, a detention farm in Redmond for men convicted of family desertion, as well as a similar farm near South Park. They sent literature to McNeil Island Penitentiary on the south end of Puget Sound and the State Penitentiary in Walla Walla in southeast Washington. 
They made a special outreach effort to the University of Washington, including the dormitories, the faculty club, and the university YMCA. Personal messages were sent to officials, such as this one. You know that the Monitor is not a religious or denominational paper, but it is an effort to answer the demand for clean journalism, and that it is an up-to-date paper filled with the latest news of America and of all foreign countries, authentic and free from party or religious bias. Its distinctive feature is that it is free from all reports of vice and crime. The standard newspapers of the East have given the Monitor high praise, and we believe that all the students will find it of real value, whether they are interested in diplomacy or sports or anything in between. We shall be glad to know that the Monitor is placed on file in your reading rooms, where it will be readily accessible to the students. They placed the Monitor in all the major hotels and boarding houses, the Salvation Army barracks, the halls of the Industrial Workers of the World Labor Organization, the logging camps, and the Pike Place Market. They put bundles of copies onto boats at docks, ferries, fishing fleets, and government ships, headed for local Puget Sound destinations, and Alaska, including Kodiak and the Aleutian Islands. Eventually, one way or another, they would learn that the literature had been received and appreciated. For their local efforts, the committee could share more details of interactions with the literature. Although several thousand papers are distributed at the shipyards, very few are thrown away. Sometimes, however, the papers are torn up and thrown violently on the ground, and sometimes they are thrown at the feet of the distributors. On one occasion, a man who took the paper threw it into the air, saying, I don't want that paper. Another man right behind him caught it before it reached the ground, remarking, I do. These rebuffs are salutary. They make us work all the harder. And the next visit to the yard is always followed by joy and gratitude. The distribution workers gave away hundreds of marked copies of Monitor issues to targeted groups when the issue contained specific articles that would be of interest to their work. They targeted school teachers and administrators, business owners, theaters, bankers, legislators, lawyers, women's groups, and artists. As people in Seattle became more familiar with the Monitor, more visitors came to the reading room to purchase copies. Sometimes they complimented the fair coverage of the controversial issues of the day. One customer stated that he had for years read the London Times, that he had always considered it the best paper published. But, said he, she will have to take a back seat for the monitor. Some of the recipients of the monitor eventually became interested in learning more about the thinking behind the newspaper. But regardless of whether Monitor readers ever came into the reading room or ever had any active interest in the religion or the healing practice, there was a bigger benefit, as touched on in one report. As a result of the activity thus inaugurated, there is apparent an awakened interest in the great work the Monitor is engaged in, that of destroying the unreasoning prejudice against Christian science, or rather the antagonism existing against a mistaken idea of what Christian science really is. 
This awakening thought is rendering it possible for the monitor to accomplish its missionary work in our midst. The committee continued trying to help church members understand their work, its impact, and the value of the monitor. In the next annual report, they explained more emphatically, By far the most important result of our work cannot be estimated in dollars and cents. Commercial bodies, mercantile establishments, and businessmen, whom we could scarcely approach a year ago, are now eager to lend us a helping hand, voluntarily offering information, assistance, and advertising not available before. A better knowledge of our work and our great daily paper, the pioneer of clean journalism, is rapidly breaking down prejudice born of ignorance. And this harbinger of good news is making a place for itself and is doing that which nothing else has done towards creating a demand for clean journalism and a wholesome respect for Christian science. Another joint activity initiated in 1912 was a lecture committee. Each of the churches held at least one Christian science lecture every year, often more than one, and sometimes several. Each lecture was a major expense and publicity effort. Fourth Church proposed that they do some coordination. The first year, they focused on merely preventing scheduling conflicts. The second year, with a team of 15, they coordinated publicity. For Bliss Knapp at the Hippodrome, the committee distributed flyers, putting 158 event notices citywide. They put flyers in the display windows of grocery stores, barber shops, furniture stores, restaurants, music stores, shoe shops, train stations, jewelers, florists, plumbers' offices, art galleries, variety stores, and even the old curiosity shop. Along with all the other joint activities, a finance committee was formed in 1912 to devise ways and means to raise sufficient funds to pay for First Church's temple and to offer advice on financing methods. They reported later that year, The committee has held many meetings and worked in perfect harmony, really seven individuals with one mind. The committee encouraged all four of the congregations to devote their first Sunday collection to the building fund of First Church. They also enlisted financial support from the Christian Science Societies beyond Seattle. They put a collection box at the reading room. Thanks to the efforts of the Joint Finance Committee and all the other joint activities, and with the financial support of the other Christian Science churches in the area, in 1912, after being in their temporary structure for more than three years, First Church could finally begin construction on their stone temple. In appreciation of the unity and cooperation and financial help, the members of First Church resolved to return the favor to the other churches in the future. We pledge our moral, financial, and spiritual support in all the constructive work for the cause of Christian science in Seattle. In the introduction for a joint lecture at Arcade Hall, Oliver C. McGilvra whose influence might have seemed to contribute to divisions only a few years earlier, now expressed what this new spirit of cooperation meant to the Christian Science Church members at this critical period. 
McGilvra explained, Biblical history is replete with examples of the wisdom of unanimity of action in the cause of truth. It was not until the multitude had come together on the day of Pentecost and were of one mind that they received the message of the Spirit with its blessing. It was not until Joshua and his followers had compassed the city of Jericho seven times and had joined in a mighty shout that the walls fell. And in the history of Christian science in Seattle, they were not able to build their church edifices, not even First Church, until the branch churches developed a spirit of unity through their joint activities. Thanks for listening to Dedication by me, Cindy Safranoff. All events and characters in this story are as true and accurate as the available sources. All opinions are mine. To support and learn more about this groundbreaking research project and read my writing, visit cindysafranoff.com.